In a world where people are famous for doing nothing, we're here to discover the ordinary individuals who take giant leaps to do something extraordinary. Welcome to Moving Forward. Welcome to this week's episode of Moving Forward. I am Kristen Nepper, and today we have a very special guest. Luba Bartnitskaya is going to be speaking with us today. And one of the reasons I wanted to have Luba on the program is she proves the point that everyone has a story, no matter how young, there is a lesson to be learned from everyone. Luba, I wanted to thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Let's go ahead and get started about you. I would describe you if someone asked me um, as a law student, but also I know that you're an immigrant and that's a big part of your story. So can you tell us about that? Sure, sure. So I feel like it shapes a lot of my life and what I do. So I immigrated from Russia when I was six years old. And where in Russia? Siberia from a town called Novosibirsk. And um, it was about 2 million people. So I mean, I guess it was a pretty big city. And the way that whole process started is my mom actually, um, she was a gynecologist in Russia, but she really just wasn't getting that professional experience and work was just very dreary and there were not enough um, resources and just kind of the hospitals were all outdated. It was all through the government. So everyone was really poor. She wasn't making any money. She would stay up all night and make coats. Like she would sew clothing and then she would sell these coats at like markets on the weekend and she would make more selling one coat than she would all month working as a doctor. That's and, astounding. I don't think people can is. really comprehend because I think, especially 20 years ago, our healthcare system is reforming right now. But to be a doctor, to be a lawyer, some of these professions meant that you had made it and that finance would never be a problem again. Absolutely. And that was not the case in Russia. And I feel like it still isn't. I always get the feeling, even though I was so young back then, even looking back now, I always felt like if you had something or if you had enough money, someone was going to take it away from you. Like the government was going to take it. Someone was going to take it away from you. There's just no, Wow. it, it just, it, there's so much corruption and so much, like, I feel like you're constantly fighting an uphill battle when you're there, you know? And my mom experienced that early on and we were, we were very poor. Nobody had toilet paper. Toilet paper was ripping up uh, newspaper into little squares and we would have black water coming out of the faucet. The way we ate was you just try to make like soup in order to like fill your body with like potatoes or something that you could find. We, it was just, and everybody was in the same shoes. Like we weren't even like a special case. It was just so it was just so hopeless and like so dreary and so dark. I know I was only five, six years old back then, but like, I think it just goes to show how bad it was that at that young age, I could tell what was going on around me. I don't even think that type of poverty is comprehensible to a lot of Americans. And to have that be the norm, that is astounding. Exactly. And that's the thing. And you said to have that be the norm. When I talk to my friends here in the U.S. today, they see the life that I had. I mean, that I have. I'm in law school. My mom's a doctor here. You must have had it made in Russia, you know, but still, like your mom was a doctor. You were fine. Like you managed to immigrate. No, my mom is truly a rags to riches story. I mean, this woman worked so hard and I can't really convey that to people when they see the life that I have today. Like you can't explain to a person what it was living through that. And um, yeah, give us a little bit about the background. How did you come to America? What was that transition? 
Sure. So my mom, you know, she's living through this and she's like, you know what, this, I, this isn't the life for me. Our family cannot go on like this. And so she, and it was incredibly hard to immigrate back then because the U.S. didn't want to let in a ton of people and then be financially responsible for all of these poor immigrants coming over. And Russia was in turmoil. So we couldn't leave as a family. And um, my mom had a friend in the U.S., this Russian friend who had immigrated, and she was in Kansas. And so she tells my mom, she says, you got to come here. You have to this. I mean, like, this is where we have to live. Like, this is where you can actually have a, a life. And so my mom worked for months and sold these coats and finally got enough money to buy a plane ticket. And she went over there with the mentality of, I'm just going to check it out. This isn't for me. I'm going to I'm going to understand that and I'm going to come back. And so I was five when my mom um, went on this trip and she um, so she arrived in Kansas and she quickly realized I have to bring my daughter here. I have to bring my family here and make a life for her here. And so then she started, it was a very long process, and um, she started working a bunch of odd jobs as a housekeeper, and she cared for an elderly couple, and she took care of this woman's horses. I mean, all sorts of stuff. And so humbling to be a doctor and then to... Absolutely. And you know, you hear so many stories of like that here in the US, people who are lawyers um, and medical doctors abroad who come to the US just um, have to start all over. And some don't even ever get that certification in the US. And they just basically, I mean, we have a lot of family friends who are lawyers in Russia who are not that in the US. And so I, I think it speaks um, to a lot of people's experience. So um, she's doing all these odd jobs. And in the meantime, her visa's running out and she starts taking these classes uh, to pass the American certification, like the foreign physician certification to become licensed to practice medicine in the U.S. Okay. My mom doesn't speak a word of English. So throughout this whole time, she managed to learn English, learn medical terminology in English, and she's taking these classes. And in the meantime, you know, it's just, it was so many like chance experiences where she met this person who led her to this person who helped her write a letter to help her get a visa. And I, I mean, I'm simplifying the process, but I didn't see my mom for 14 months. And it was incredibly difficult because I was, I was five and a half years old. And I'm, it was just me. I'm the only child at that point. And I just missed her so much. And you're a young child, but on top of that, I'm a young girl. And so mm. all I need is my mom at that point. And she could only call ever so often because it was incredibly expensive. And I remember her telling me it was $5 a minute for her to call us. And we couldn't afford to call her. So we never called her. It was whenever she would call us. And I remember, I remember one time she even like snuck away and used the house phone at the, at the lady's house where she was living. And she like got in huge trouble for that. Um, Mm. but I got to a point where, um, whenever she would call, I just, I I couldn't talk to her because I just missed her so much hearing her voice. It just killed me. And I just, I, um, she tells me the story all the time, but I don't even remember it. She said that one time I just told her on the phone, I just wish I could just crawl through the wires through the little phone and come out on the other end and see you those 14 months I will never forget because I just I just missed my mom so much and there were times where I was angry because I was like you know what is this for what is this why I don't know what's happening why are we doing this and now I'm just I'm so eternally grateful for her and to her because I can I don't even want to begin to imagine what my life would have been if we were still in Russia I cannot imagine trying to explain to a five-year-old why we're going through this process. And who were you living with? Who was caring for you 
while your mother was away? Yeah. So I was living with my dad and um, actually his dad lived with us in the same apartment. So it was the three of us. And so I'm living with these two men. And it was hard because you need your mom and you need that feminine energy and you just you just need that comfort. And my father, uh, both of my my dad and my uh, my grandfather loved me very much, but they just they weren't the most comforting people. And my dad's a very quiet man and they both dealt with their bouts of alcoholism. And so I felt very isolated and lonely and um it was, it was hard. It was very hard for me. And I mean, they never hurt me. They never, I, and I knew they loved me, but that's not enough when you're living with alcoholics. And, um, mm, yeah. my, my, uh, my mom's mom. So my, so my dad's mom, um, died before I was born. I was actually named after her, but, um, my mom's mom, my grandmother, um, she was also there and she, uh, lived a ways away from us. So I would see her on occasion and, my mom's dad, so my grandfather, he also had his troubles with alcoholism. And you know what? It wasn't it wasn't unique in Russia. Like I said, everyone was poor. All the men were alcoholics. It just it was very, very depressing. And those were the people around me. And um, it was difficult. They all loved me. They never hurt me. But it just it sucked. You know, I mean, yeah. I felt like I didn't have anyone to go to. Like there was like I just. I just felt lonely and um, I both, so those 14 months when my mom was away, I couldn't get, they wouldn't let me out of the country because once a mom is united with her child, she's never going back to wherever she came from. And so actually during those 14 months, it was, you know, it was all very difficult. We were trying to get out, but my, um, both of my grandfathers died. And so my mom couldn't. During the time your mom was away, both of your grandfathers passed away. Both of them died. And you know, wow, for me, it was hard for I, I I remember not being very sad about it because I I couldn't comprehend it first of all and second of all like I didn't have those experiences with my grandfathers you know where they like buy me gifts and read me books and we have playtime together like all I remember about my grandfathers is their alcoholism and how they would scream and yell and just yeah. like that environment and the saddest thing for me now looking back is that my mother couldn't come back for her father's funeral because if she did she wouldn't be able to get back out um into the u.s so oh wow just all was very um and they both died from alcoholism um my dad's dad died pretty tragically in an accident um after drinking and my uh my mom's dad was 54 years old i mean 54 mom is 53 right now like it's just it's crazy. What strikes me about this? I mean, it's it's a bleak picture, but as you've pointed out, it was the norm. This is the way every family functioned. This is the choice that was available to everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't, and the, the thing that gets me most about that is I don't know where my mother got that drive and that, um, that fire inside of her to be like, you know what, this is, this is not happening to my family. This is not how we're going to do it. Because, um, like I said, her father was an alcoholic. Um, her mom like barely finished the seventh grade and my grandmother is like a tough cookie and, a, um, has common sense, but beyond that, she's not, you know, she's not very academic. She's not an intellectual person. And so, Um, My mom, after graduating high school, she went and worked in a factory for a year where she would explain to me she would be at one spot on the assembly line and she would be like putting this one button on this one thing. And she was like, you know what? If I do this for the rest of my life, I'm going to lose it. So she was like, I'm going to medical school. I'm going to do this. And um, she left home when she was 17 years old because she just couldn't deal with my 
my grandfather's alcoholic ways. And so, um, I, I just, it, my mom blows me away because I don't know where, where she got that. Yeah. Without seeing an example, it's really hard to say, to reject the notion of normalcy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's go back to your mom. So she's learning English. She's studying for the boards. How did your family reunite? So um, finally, we got word. I don't, there was a lot of letter writing, a lot of like working with strength. I mean, my mom didn't know anyone when she came to the US. So I just want people to understand how much of like chance this was and much work and hustling on her part, meeting this person and reaching out to the, like this woman barely speaks English and she somehow managed to get her entire family into the US. So um, January of 1994, my dad and I land in Chicago O'Hare. And I, um, my mom was gonna, my mom drove 10 hours from Kansas to pick us up by car. And so I remember my kind of my first distinct memory is, um, my dad has one of those push carts with our luggage on there. And, um, there's these sliding glass doors in front of me and there's two guards on either side. And I'm this like little six year old twig. And, um, I just, I remember looking at them and because in Russia, like the figure of authority is like, it's very scary. Like there's no, you should be very scared when you see two guards. And so like, of course I'm coming in with that mentality and my dad's like, no, just go, just go. And so I walk out and I don't remember seeing my mom. The next memory I have is standing in front of her and she's kneeling down and she's crying. And I didn't understand that because, you know, as a child, you just, you cry when you're sad. And so when you see an adult cry, you think, oh, they're sad. And so um, just that moment where she was so happy to see me and I was so happy to see her. And I remember a few few nights later, I was um, sleeping in bed with her. And I just remember waking up in the middle of the night and telling her, I can't believe this is real. You know, like, I just feel like I'm dreaming or that something is going to take you away from me. And, um, it's just like that, that seeing your mom again and coming together was, um, was very incredible. And, uh, I remember, um, so we started driving, it was nighttime, was so cold and we had this, um, crappy little Ford car and, um, the heat barely worked. And so, um, my dad fell asleep and my mom, uh, we kept driving and at one point, um, we, you know, we get to a grocery store And first of all, it's huge. I mean, what is this like big box with so many aisles? (laughs) And um, she she says, close your eyes. And then she starts putting me in a shopping cart, like in the in the front. And I'm like, what are you doing? This is crazy. I'm going to get in trouble. What is this thing? Have you not been in a shopping cart before? There are shopping carts in Russia. I mean, I think there are now. But back then when I mean, there were like nobody knew such a thing existed. Like and they don't have like huge stores. It's like. A little store you go in, there's like some bread and some whatnot, but it, these huge stores was non-existent. And so she puts me in the front seat and I'm like, what, it, like the, what, where are we? And so <laughs> she, um, she rolls me around a little bit and she says, close your eyes. And so I close my eyes and then she turns me around and there's strawberries and, um, in January, January, strawberries in January. And I was just blown away because in Russia, I mean, like I said, extreme poverty, everything is like seasonal. So, and you don't, you can't go to the store and buy strawberries. Like, good luck finding some outside, like growing somewhere. Like, there was no fruit. There was no, like, it was just the bare essentials. Like, I remember when my dad and I were still living there, 
if he would ever buy me a treat, he'd be like, okay, like we're walking by something. And he would be like, you know, pick a Snickers or pick a banana. And like, wow, genuinely my, like I would be torn picking between a Snickers and a banana. And, you know, now I think like how many bananas I throw away all the time. And it's just, I mean, that just makes me feel horrible for him. (laughs) (laughs) Just brings me back. This is what it once was. And sometimes I can't even believe that that was the progression, but Um, yeah. And so I just remember that grocery store experience with my mom and I just, it was just all so much so fast. And, um, it was, it was very much a long, a long journey. So once you arrived in the United States, tell us a little bit about your transition. So you're six years old. You didn't speak the language, I'm assuming. Yes. Okay. So how did you learn English? Let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. So, you know, it's January, it's the middle of the school year. And um, I should have gone to first grade based on my age. But I went to kindergarten because I, you know, I didn't speak a lick of English. And that um, basically that whole rest of the school year, I um, sat in a classroom, didn't understand what was going on around me, drew a ton of pictures, Mm -hmm. literally would draw pictures to communicate with my with my teacher. My teacher was great. She was, um, Miss Jones, very sympathetic and helpful. And there were a couple of kids who really um, helped me out and teach me along the way. But so I finished off that school year. Um, and then I went to just like a summer daycare kind of camp every single day. And um, that's basically where I learned English just by immersion. I never had any formal training. And basically, I remember after that, summer feeling like, okay, I can speak English now. And I don't even remember how it happened or the moment where I felt like, okay, I can speak English. It just just kind of happened. And so that fall, I went into first grade. And that was that. And that was that. Yeah. And here I am. Wow. Well, when you were a kid, I mean, that sounds, what a crazy road. And it's so tumultuous. It's such a tiny age where it's so hard to comprehend everything. But I wanted to ask you, kind of going back to that time and similarly related, was there anything you were passionate about as a kid and how did that play into what you do today? You know, I I don't ever remember feeling passionate about anything and there was nothing that like lit me up. I was I think for a long time, I was in very much of a survival mode. It was like, okay, this is your life. This is what you do. You go to school, you come home to this. And um, there was just not a lot of like color and brightness in my life. Um, And I I, want to be careful because I don't want to say that like my family around me, like at the end of the day, like I knew I was loved. I never felt like harmed and outright. It it was just, but there were things missing. And um, I think just now when I look back on that, it makes me so much more appreciative. And now I have a, I have a huge soft spot for kids because I just, I remember how I felt and I just want to make sure that other people don't have to feel that way. And so I think that lack of passion back then kind of taught me now to just try to help other kids or to other people to maybe actually have a passion Well, I know you do a lot of volunteer work. So can you describe how you, I think we have a sense of it, but how you felt back then? Um, You know, like I said, I felt isolated and lonely and I just felt like I didn't have anyone to talk to and I didn't have that maternal influence for a long time. And it just, I just, it was sad, you know, I was lonely. And so now when I see kids, I just, 
I just want to hug them and squeeze them. And, um, you know, so I spent a lot of time in um, college and high school volunteering at um, local homeless shelters and tutoring programs that um, tutored basically homeless kids or who were in very rough circumstances. I, I um, tutored kids in um, abused mother shelters and things like that because I just I just wanted to um, not have them feel like I felt. Mm. One of the things that always has struck me about you, Luba, is just the amount of gratitude you take into your everyday. And it's obvious it's because you know what it's like to lack. So thank mm-hmm. you for that. Hey, Moving Forward listeners. If you're enjoying today's episode, consider supporting the podcast. You can purchase a copy of the Corporate Clichés Adult Coloring Book or try out Amazon Prime or Audible using one of my affiliate links, which you can find in the write-up for any of the episodes at bemovingforward.com. What is the hardest thing that's happened to you? It sounds like, I mean, it's such a tumultuous story, but I do still want to ask this question out of all of that, the alcoholism, the poverty, moving from Siberia to the United States, what has been the hardest thing and how did you overcome it? This is one of the more difficult things for me to talk about because I feel like I still haven't dealt with it. But um, when I mentioned back in Russia who I had around me, so I had my dad and his dad, and then I had my mom's mom and her husband, so um, both of those grandparents. But I also, um, my mom had a brother, and he was 15 younger years younger than her. And um, so he was living with my grandma when I was still in Russia, and um, he he was killed um, my sophomore year in high school, so he was still in Russia. And when I say killed, you know, I can't even, he was murdered. And I can't, it's hard for me to even utter those words because I can't believe it's real. And I can't believe this happened to us. And I don't know how to even talk about it because I just tend to run away from those thoughts. But um, he, he was when I think back in Russia, he was just always in my corner and he was looking out for me and he just felt like a big brother. And I always wanted to impress him and I wanted to tell him a cool story or show him like a cool trick or something. He just, he was just cool and he protected me. And, um, you know, he was young and he, he would do stupid stuff here and there. And my mom would always bail him out. And I think it got to a point where you constantly, you ask yourself, when do I draw the line? Where, where do I put down my foot? And so I think it was one of those, um, situations where she couldn't really bail him out anymore. And, um, he was killed and, um, I have a little brother and he was born when I was 10 and, um, I just, I love him so much and we have a great relationship and I, my biggest fear in life is losing my little brother. And to know that my mom has gone through that pain, it just kills me. And um, it's been an incredibly hard thing for our family. And honestly, I know we haven't dealt with it the right way because we don't talk about it. We keep his memory alive, but it's very much like walking on um, eggshells around it and making sure that, I don't know, like I feel like sometimes I'm just a robot who can't feel anything about it because I'm too scared to to feel because it's just such a such a horrific thing. I've truly never sat down with my mom and talked about the details of everything that happened. And I'm too scared to talk to her about it because I don't want to make her upset. But it also, it makes it hard for me to, to grieve and to get some sort of closure and to any, you know, to ever talk to anyone about it because I don't, I don't want to cheapen his death. And I think that sometimes I think that my lack of details about it 
makes me think that people might think, oh, you're, you're just trying to get attention for this or you're not, you're not doing this the right way. And so it's just been all a very, this very dark cloud of sadness and mystery. And um, I would say that's easily the hardest thing. And close second is um, my grandmother had a stroke in 2012 and now she's, um, half of her body is paralyzed and she, um, she lives with us now and has round the clock care, but it's just, that's, that's my mom's family is her father died of alcoholism. Her brother was murdered. And now my grandmother at 73 years old is paralyzed and has a very low quality of life. So it just, those things I think, and seeing my mom go through that and us as a family is, is, um, the hardest thing. And I feel like I still haven't overcome a lot of it. I think that's very brave of you to say that and to share that. I know that's a difficult story. And we had spoken about the mystery behind your uncle's murder really had impacted you because you still had so many questions. So it's hard to grieve when you don't fully understand what has happened. And I think that's an important story to share because we all have an aspect of ourselves that maybe there's some mystery or maybe we for lack of a better term, don't feel worthy to grieve because we don't understand what happened or why we made certain choices depending on the situation. And I think that's just very brave of you to to share. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think I know the answer to this, but I want to ask the next question anyway. So what do you do best? And this is where you get to brag. Um, it's an inch wide and a mile deep. Um, I think, you know, like I said, I think this all goes back to um, when I was a young kid and the way I felt um, and I was made to feel. And so I now whenever if I'm helping um, a kid or just a peer, I think I try to be I try to be patient and I try to be very thorough and I try to be understanding. And I think I have a lot of empathy because I just I um, my friends say that I can uh, relate to a lot of different people because I think people are surprised to to know that I am the way that I am sometimes because they don't understand my past experiences and how I'm able to relate those to their experiences. And so it's great that some of my sad background has helped me um, to be more empathetic and to be able to help different kinds of people. And so just whenever I'm working with a different type of person, I just kind of, I'm reminded to, I guess, step back and and um, be grateful for what I have and just try to be patient and um, understand that we all have completely different backgrounds that no one might know about. And I think that that was true when I first met you. I think we discussed how you had grown up in Alaska. And mm. I was like, oh, there you know, are not that many people from there. And then that led to a discussion that, oh, well, you were from Russia originally. And I would never have known any of this about your past because you're always such an upbeat, positive person. Person. And one of the things that always strikes me, especially in a world of technology where we are constantly go, 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 do more, do better, is you're very, very patient and you are calm and you can sit and you can explain the same concept over and over, including to me, um, <laughs> when necessary, <laughs> and just do it with every happiness in the world as you're explaining the same concept again and again and again. And so I think that that really impacts everyone. It's yeah. And it's a joy to watch you and it's a joy to be around you because of that. Thank you so much. I really, I really appreciate that. When, when other people can notice things about you, I, um, that's very, it's humbling. So thank you. Yeah. And it's just such a contrast to what you've endured and the way you've been able to see your personal experience and not 
internalize it, I guess is the word I want to use, because you're able to come to work every day and to enjoy your life. So yeah, it's really a testament to the human spirit. Yeah, yes. So another question. So when did you fail? And yet it changed everything for the better you turned and we just talked about it, but a negative into a positive. You know, there's nothing specific that comes to my mind. I fail all the time. I um, I get rejected from jobs. I get rejected from opportunities at school and all throughout life. I mean, yeah, we all get rejected from stuff. But um, there's nothing in my life where there was like that one thing that was like, oh, this was such a failure and it just, it held me back. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I fail all the time and I think it's just just I try to keep pushing and um, keep going. And that's not to say that I do have my moments of denial. I um, I just got rejected from my, like, basically the last application that I had applied for a job after um, graduation from law school and after I, I take the bar. And I absolutely am putting my head in the sand. And I haven't been reaching out to the people I should be reaching out to because I think there's, like, some embarrassment there and some... Um, some shame, I guess, but it's just like another one of those setbacks in life. And I know I'll figure it out at some point, but it's just kind of, I guess I'll just try to keep pushing because I always think back to my mom and I'm like, seriously, okay, so I'm in law school. I have food and shelter. I have these amazing opportunities. Like literally, what could I be complaining about? Mm. Well, I think that that's great that you recognize that there are ebbs and flows and there are lulls. And so just to appreciate, you know what, right now I am going to bury my head in the sand and I am going to take a break because I have other things to worry about and then I'll get back to it. Exactly. And I think a lot of times we don't give ourselves that kind of pause that we need. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Let me ask you, were you spiritual as a child? How did that influence any of your life, your values, your views? I definitely wasn't spiritual as a child, and I um, never really experienced religion as a child. My family wasn't religious. We didn't really talk about it. I don't know about modern day, but back then, you know, people didn't go to church every Sunday, and there wasn't, like, any sort of ritual, and, like, people didn't have time for that. I mean, it was, like, you better work and, like, survive and get food on the table. So there wasn't a lot of time for, like, finding yourself or experimenting with your beliefs. It was just everyone was in such survival mode, and so— yeah. I was never had that influence around me, I guess, of, of religion or spirituality. What about now? Now I'm, I don't know. Um, (laughs) so, you know, for a long time, I just, um, I kind of thought that I was an atheist because I think so many things in my life have happened and I've experienced, um, a lot of death and a lot of tragedy and been thinking to like the children suffering in Africa and starvation and AIDS and all of that. I think it's hard for me to overcome that and think like, oh, there is a higher power with a purpose. Like what is the purpose of those children suffering? And so, Mm. and just like the logical aspect of my brain and law school and things like that, like you need concrete science evidence. My mom's a physician. It's all about science. And so, yes, maybe like in the last five years, I just maybe I've grown to be a little more spiritual, I guess. Maybe sometimes I hope that um, there's like certain energies around me and there's, I've had experiences in my life with some people that were were more kind of spiritual than religious and just have talked um, about their experiences. And I think maybe it's opened up my eyes a little bit, but I have a hard time believing, I'll be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Can you share one of those experiences with us? 
when we were in Kansas, one of the, um, there was a couple, kind of an older couple, and they really helped us a lot with our immigration process and um, wrote a lot of letters and did a lot of things for us. And then when we came, they set up our apartment and gave us a ton of dishes and things like that. And so um, this gentleman, his name is William Mundy, and he's actually, um, he was a, a physician, but he practiced a lot of um, kind of spirituality um typed medicine, I guess. And um, so he would share his experiences with me. And he actually um, drove me to kindergarten every single day. And uh, he just passed away in September at, um, he was over 90 years old. And so he was like, really the closest thing that I had had to a grandfather growing up. And um, he just kind of opened my eyes to certain things and gave me a taste of what he believed in. And um, I actually flew back to uh, Kansas in April to basically say goodbye to him because we thought he was going to pass away sooner than he did. April of and, last year? Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Oh, yeah. It's been a year. And it was the first time in my life that I had experienced death where I wasn't extremely heartbroken because I had the death that I had experienced was sudden and tragic and horrible. And this was like a peaceful way to say goodbye. And he just always told me um, when I was leaving that he would always be around me. And for whatever reason, I believe it. And I and I, there's no science or explanation, but I just at times I feel at peace. And I don't when I think about him, my heart doesn't break. And maybe that's why why I believe that um, that he's around me. I don't know. Well, I think the beauty is that you don't have to know. And none of us really know, even if we think we do, until we reach the other side. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing that and being so vulnerable and open today. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, it's, a, it's a good experience. You have a lot to share. And if our listeners wanted to learn more about you or connect with you, is there a way they can do so on social media? Sure. Yeah. I have a LinkedIn profile. It's just under my name, Luba Bartnitskaya. Could you spell that for <laughs> our listeners? Sure. So it's L-U-B-A and my last name is Bartnitskaya, B-A-R-T-N-I-T-S-K-A-I-A. Beautiful. Thank you. Luba, thank you again for being here and sharing your story so eloquently. I think it's going to be impactful for a lot of people just to know that you do not have to have the answers, but also to shift their perspective to know that things are not as bad as they may seem. And there's always an opportunity for redemption. Yes. Thank you for having me. This was a very unique, fun experience. Absolutely. And listeners, thank you. Did you like this podcast? If so, rate us on iTunes and Stitcher and subscribe. Until next time, I'm Kristen Epper. Have a wonderful day and Sat Nam. Now it's time for you to move forward and discover the extraordinary in you. Moving Forward is produced by John Lim and BeMovingForward.com. All rights reserved.